sound like an, an optimist almost sounds like you're an idiot. Like, are you reading the news? Stories define us as humans, as civilizations. Stories are important. Oral stories are important. Oral traditions are important. The written word is important. And all of those things lend themselves to imagination and lend themselves to imagining what a better future can look like. 100 years in the future, I would hope we can get over this climate problem. With the deforestation, with the carbon dioxide emission, it's like a, 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 an atomic bomb. Society pushing forward with like technology, so it's kind of trying to find that balance. The future is here and that chain goes on and on forever so it's a definitely an interesting thought like what does the future mean when it's always happening the future is always present my name is Jess Merwin I am a queer non-binary Mi'kmaq artist educator and film programmer. Uh, I also do a lot of community work and I'm pretty passionate about not only sort of like climate change uh, activism but also just things related to climate justice and uh, the imagination and the future. For me it sort of divides into like two distinct sort of like ideologies or two distinct sort of like actions like uh you know when it comes to like climate change you know or talking about like the little things that we can do every day in terms of like uh, being proactive using community transport you know like recycling trying not to take unnecessary trips in planes you know like things like that whereas like climate justice uh, for me is a lot more tied to aboriginal title and land rights and environmental racism and things of that nature because like for example in the province that i'm from nova scotia uh, we have this very long history of you know situating things like a dump or situating like a runoff pond from like a pulp and paper mill right next to communities of color, indigenous communities, black communities. And over and above the impact that that has on the environment, there's a real like human impact that that has on the, those communities. You know, if it's like elevated rates of cancer, whether it's, you know, not like having to be under boil order, not having clean, safe drinking water, whether it's like environmental like toxins, like heavy metal poisoning and things like that. So it's you know it's like i said it's sort of two distinct kind of ideologies both sort of you know like the global effort to reduce emissions to protect our environment but also the very specific effort as an indigenous person to protect the land and protect communities there's so many things that i'd want 100 years from now i think a big part of it would be that we've gotten to a place where our consumption doesn't outstrip what we are able to sustainably harvest you know whether that's agriculturally or in terms of like you know harvesting like things like uh fish or, or you know even if it's like resources like i think right now we're in such a cycle of taking more than than we can sustainably that i think the biggest change that i that i really want to see is like moving back to a system that is much more sustainable, that is much more accountable to the environment. Again, not seeing ourselves as separate from it. You know, like people like to talk a lot about how they're like, well, before Europeans came to North America, uh, you know, we 
like uh, indigenous people had a much more sustainable relationship with the environment. But that's because, you know, like I mentioned with Mi'kmaq worldview, we saw ourselves as part of the environment. We didn't see ourselves as separate. And I think sometimes, especially since I, you know, I mostly lived in a city these last 30 odd years, you know, I think that it's really easy to forget that, that, that you're part of an environment, that you're an animal, just like a squirrel, <laughs> you know, different than a squirrel in the sense that like you live in a house and you wear pants, but like, not different from a squirrel in in the sense that like you're a, a mammal and you have primary needs of like shelter and food and connection with other mammals you know so i one of the big changes i want to see is that is that sustainability piece and that accountability piece like you know also not putting things out into the world that we can't find a solution to you know like it's great to develop a type of bacteria that can eat crude oil for when it spills and you know creates a natural disaster but also like what is going to be like the side effects of that like further down the line you know and like what kind of byproducts do those bacteria create and like there's sort of other questions of like once we start changing things you know it's always a ripple effect you know so there's there's things like that that I would really like to see change I would also like to see people have like even in cities have more green space and have more space just in general to be outside. I think part of it is, you know, shifting away from a model where, you know, we sort of have to depend on working every waking moment in order to pay for housing. Like I'd really like to see housing become a lot more affordable so that people can take time to spend time outside to, you know, go sit in a park, to cultivate a garden, to do things like that. Because I think also having that connection to green spaces helps tremendously care about them you know like if you don't have never had any kind of like contact with like a park or the ocean or you know it's it's very like it's hard to care about those things so i think that if we move to a system where people can live and have their needs taken care of without you know needing to have side gigs and like a primary job and work 80 hours a week then I think that, like, I think it will also really benefit the environment. In order to make those things a reality, you know, we have to start doing them. We can't sort of project into the future and be like, someday, you know, uh, this won't be an issue anymore. We have, to, we have to do it by action. And I think that that's, like, why so much of my practice, um, even, even when I say, like, I'm an educator and an artist and these other things, like, so much of it is really very much grounded in activism like because it's like we have to be that change in motion you know and when you talk about sort of like we are living in the future we're also living in the past we're also like where in that is the room for the present and I think sometimes we neglect the importance of like what our actions are today now like I think it's really really easy to say Oh, well, we will do this. But when I talk about futurism, a lot of times it has to do with like working in a way that models the type of behaviors and attitudes and approaches that I that I would like to see more widely adopted. And part of that has to do a lot with like things like informed consent and the environment also sort of factors in that, you know, like if we're doing some kind of art project, you know, like thinking about it from the perspective of like how 
like what is the environmental impact on this i have a lot of anxiety <laughs> i would say in a general sort of way you know joking aside like i have a lot of anxiety you know about like what will happen if we don't change what we're doing and the, the biggest thing about it that i think is so frustrating for me is the fact that like as much as we can do as individuals like there's certain things that you know really will take government to change and really will take corporations to change and like the biggest polluters in the world are like the top one percent and so it's like changing behaviors of the ultra wealthy i have no hope like you know i might be able to get people involved in you know community organizing but i you know i cannot i have no effect on jeff bezos <laughs> you know so it's you know there's there's things that are so far beyond my control that like it, it actually causes me a lot of anxiety to think about sometimes, you know, like in our Mi'kmaq worldview, you know, we we talk a lot about how everything is interconnected and everything is in a constant state of movement, of change. With that in mind, it's like I always I always use the analogy of like we're like fibers in a piece of like material or we're like strands in a spider's web. And so to be a good part of being a good Mi'kmaq is like being aware of those relationships and they exist in our language they exist in our our worldview they exist in the in our spirituality and it's like it it feels sometimes like climate change is like could be the equivalent of being like knowing that your your house might be condemned and so there's no way of like separating our, ourselves out from like this planet this is like it's like our our home fundamentally like even just on the sense of like our bodies are composed of elements some of which come from stars like that famous Carl Sagan we are star stuff but like some of them come from like this planet itself like you know that like same elements that you would find on a rock you know the same elements that you'd find in like water you know are part of us and so you know, kind of seeing it as all being sort of one thing. And all of a sudden, we're not as reliant on things like hydroelectrical dams, which, you know, hydroelectrical dams, in theory, are a great idea. But here in Quebec, like some of the major hydroelectrical dams that have been built have been built in Cree territory. And uh, I have friends, you know, around like James Bay and Iyoishi, you know, and those dams have adversely affected not only just the land like actual erosion uh, rates have gone way up it's interrupted like certain like migratory patterns of certain uh, animals but it's it's also displaced communities like communities have had to move because of hydroelectrical dam development and that's not an isolated thing that happens all across our country where especially like indigenous communities often get displaced through sort of like modern treaties and modern agreements towards about land usage it's like you sort of think like oh well they had to move their town but they didn't move their town very far away it's fine but you think about like the reserve system in and of itself like reserves are often remote they don't necessarily have a ton of services they weren't necessarily built to last like a lot of times like housing on reserve and a lot of reserves have like housing crises of their own but like a lot of housing on reserve is like quite poor quality because it was like very quickly thrown together for as little money as possible having to move your home for something like a dam or like having your former home flooded for something like a dam 
just kind of like reinforces in a really big way like how little you matter and you know people who've been on the land since time immemorial it's very difficult to then sort of be like oh yeah well we're gonna flood this whole area and i know this whole area wasn't a lake before but now it's going to be a lake deal with it you know and it changes the ecology it changes people's relationship to the land it changes so many so many things lakes that are artificially created when something like a hydroelectrical project happens if they're covering like a forest are not necessarily like lakes that you can introduce like aquaculture into so again like we're starting to you know we're changing one thing that's creating more problems as opposed to solving them and it's like green electricity is great you know if we can figure out a way to do hydroelectricity in a way that is sustainable and not pushing indigenous people off their land great cool i'm all for it i know there's projects like in the bay of fundy generating electricity from like tidal movements it's like cool let's you know i'm all i'm all on board for stuff like that but we have to i think like i said you know i think we have to start like assessing what it means to like live sustainably and accountably it's kind of like decolonization it's great to say like our goal is to decolonize you know whatever like an institution or a practice or a country ultimately you know hopefully but like what does that actually concretely mean like what are we doing today and I think that that's like in sort of seeing the world like I mentioned from like a Mi'kmaq perspective of being connected to everything and everything always is in change you're sort of within this like ever present sort of moment like it's there is the past and there is the future but the point in time in which you are is always going to be the present this is going to get dark but like everybody dies at some point you know like at the end of the day there's going to be things that you probably regret you know I'd like to think at the end you can at least be proud of like the way that you've lived and the choices that you've made even if you haven't always made the right choice or even if you haven't lived always the way that you'd wanted to I think that like I'm a really big believer in that idea of sort of like well you know I had to at least try and then hopefully somebody will be influenced by that you know and then they'll try and then you know series of sort of like smaller actions will happen yeah because like it's it's all about sort of like imagining possibilities right and if we act on those possibilities then they're not just possibilities anymore there are options so when I moved to this neighborhood originally one of the things I really liked was that like if I left my windows open during the summer I could hear crickets and it reminded me a lot of like places that I've lived that have been more rural and it's like gradually in the last three years gotten less and less and less because in the open fieldy sort of spaces that we used to have across the road they've built condos you know so now you don't hear the crickets anymore and it's like that's so depressing to me you know there's like so many good sounds that are like so comforting to us and yet we create these spaces that are so devoid of them and like acoustically like don't get me even started on sort of like the way that we construct like city blocks I think is very counterintuitive for like good acoustics because you sort of get these like hard surfaces where like sound gets like refracted and like echoes around but doesn't act like doesn't actually fill the space it just kind of fills the space with like the reverberations and it's just not it's just not good you know it's just not good you know in the work that I do with with youth and with like teens I think education kind of comes into that in terms of like you know making sure that they are equipped with the facts 
as early as possible because like it becomes really really difficult sometimes to change somebody's mind when they're in their 50s or 60s or 70s and they've been doing something a certain way for an extended period of time but if you can tell somebody who's 15 be like hey you know what we really have to get our asses together or you're not gonna have like a planet to live on they're like very they're highly motivated they're like okay and they have the energy to to be like all right you know let's do this you know and and like part of it too or one thing that like I I try and think about a lot and try and keep in mind as well is that it's also about like approaching things in a very holistic way which is is by its nature very interdisciplinary because it's not sort of saying like oh, well, you know, we can only look at sort of one aspect of this. So I think, you know, like when we bring art into the conversation, when we bring education to the conversation, when we're getting young people involved, when uh, we're able to engage using like a diverse amount of platforms, like all of a sudden, you know, it's you're having like a lot more of an effect, you know, and it, it it's a lot more, I think, people become a lot more engaged on a, on a like a more personal level with what you're trying to communicate, which of course is about climate change and climate justice. I'm very, I feel very, very fortunate. And I feel, I feel better about the future when I get to work with young people because a lot of them already do have ideas about like, you know, the planet and about climate change. You know, you look at folks like Autumn Peltier, who's like, I think 16 now, who's been like a, a water rights and like land protector, you know, like a lot of like indigenous youth are involved in a lot of activism when it comes like to land protection and things like that. And, you know, that gives me so much hope because it's like, we're not moving towards apathy because I think apathy would be the worst of all possible futures, right? Like if, if people just did nothing and yet you, you have these young people who are very aware and very politicized and are, following through with their actions. I can remember when I started going to protests when I was like 14 and like people thought I was weird and it, but it was like the beginning of the Iraq war. And I was like, it was like my entry into like a lot of different like things, you know, it was, it was like the, the gateway drug of like activism, I guess. But like, I didn't know anybody else my age who was going to protest. And yet like I was up North again when like the blockades were happening and like my students, my, who were like in a high school were like, we're going to do a mini blockade here in our community and so we did one in solidarity you know and like even just seeing not only just like indigenous youth but like queer youth too be a lot more vocal and a lot more political and just a lot more involved even like uh you know i think people there's things perhaps to criticize about you know like some of the things that greta thunberg's been involved in but there's another example of like a gen z person who you know has really really mobilized not only like herself but like a lot of young people into getting involved in like climate change activism so the fact that they are involved and aware is amazing it makes me so proud of them and so hopeful because yeah that's what it's going to take it's going to take like that that kind of change like that generational kind of change I'm Jeff Strong, and I'm an atmospheric climate scientist. I retired early from Environment Canada in order to carry on the research I was doing. And about 15 years ago, I switched from my main area of expertise, which is severe weather, thunderstorms, tornadoes, hurricanes, that sort of thing, 
into tackling the climate question. And my purpose was to try and bring public education on climate change. And so I've done that through, I give frequent invited talks, uh, seminars, I write media articles. So uh, my background is I got my PhD from uh, University of Alberta in 1985. <laughs> I've been uh, a meteorologist since the uh, I'm almost afraid to say the mid-60s, my first posting was Montreal, well, actually the South Shore, uh, CFB Saint-Hubert. Well, just to give you an example, back in the 1960s on Vancouver Island here, which is basically a mountain range, right? There were 170 documented glaciers on mountains on Vancouver Island. Today, there are four, maybe only three by now, that's all. So that's a, a change, you know. And you see changes in the years over over the years in vegetation, for example. A lot of species going extinct. And of course, the increase in forest fires. Forest fires were not an oddity when I was your age, but, but uh, certainly weren't as many as there are now. Now, today, the news is filled with them, right? Wildfires in Australia and California, Oregon, and of course, in... BC and Alberta and in Ontario, for example, and probably Northern Quebec and Labrador as well. So those are changes that have taken place. But the other is, uh, we haven't really started much on sea level rise. There's only been incremental sea level rise so far, but that's going to also accelerate rapidly over the next uh, few decades. So depends on carbon dioxide. So, but of course, humans came along and invented the internal combustion engine, and we went from there, and we have too much. Too much of anything is not healthy, right? You could kill yourself from drinking water, you know, just to use a stupid example. So um, 100 years in the future, I would hope we can get over this climate problem. And um, with the technology we have available and what we would develop, uh, I think uh, it would be pretty pleasant living probably everywhere on earth. That's, that would take a change in uh, the way we have governments and industry as well. Getting rid, rid of large um, international corporations, for example, and making governments more you know, responsive to the public than it is to industry. Because right now, our governments are basically, in an indirect way, controlled by industry, particularly the fossil fuel industry. So we need things like proportional representation in government for voting and that sort of thing, but trying to implement that is difficult things. We tend to emphasize too much the, the global mean global temperature increase. And what it really means is that by increasing the temperature of the earth, and that that's an average for the whole globe for all times of the year, you're actually increasing the amount of heat that's going into the atmosphere. And heat is energy. So what we're doing is energizing the atmosphere and that can come out, that can be transferred in a number of ways. One of it is increasing the kinetic energy of the atmosphere. So winds get stronger, storms get more intense, storms move faster, those kinds of things. And the other impact is in terms of what we call potential energy, which is um, causes things like more evaporation, more evapotranspiration, particularly in the subtropics. We're getting desertification, which is destroying uh, means to grow crops, re reducing the amount of arable land, amount of water, and that immediately starts local conflicts, which often explode into 
cross-border conflicts. Every country across North Central Africa, in the, what we call the Sahel region, has had a civil war or a border war in the past 30 years. Some of them, several, and that's on the increase. And that's causing people to you know, get the heck out of it, right? To migrate to other regions. So we're seeing that new term, climate refugees, and it's going to become more and more evident as we go along in this century, unless we get a handle on global warming. And there are lots of means talked about to reduce global warming, but the key one is a rapid reduction in carbon emissions. And that means in some cases shutting down industry, but it needn't have to be that. It could be a means of capturing carbon at the source and um, sequester it away into the ground or whatever. That technology is available, but it's very expensive. So it's going to involve uh, government help, I suppose, with industry to do that. But they're not pushing it enough right now. And uh, we saw how quickly government reacted to the COVID. I mean, they've spent hundreds of billions of dollars, and we're going to have to do the same thing for climate. But they just haven't come around to it yet. They think that they can do it through planting more trees and that sort of thing. And that helps. But the um, just for example, for the amount of carbon emissions going into the atmosphere globally per year would require planting 600 trillion trees which is not possible. The number of trees on earth is about 3 trillion. You had to get that up to 600. You, you see the, the kind of uh, problem you have there with uh, counting on planting trees to battle climate change. It helps, but only very insignificantly. So a few years ago, when a young lady, <laughs> Greta Thunberg, started her, her climate um, strikes, and it spread to millions of uh, youth around the world, if there's one thing that industry and government are scared of is Greta Thunberg, honestly, they are. So I think it's going to involve more of that kind of uh, peaceful, um, you know, reaction by, by youth and, and with, with the support of the adult population as well, the older people like me, <laughs> to um, convince government, I'm sorry, you have to do this. It can be done at the ballot box as well, because a lot the next election, there's a lot of young people in Canada and elsewhere will be eligible to vote. And you need to think about where you place your vote. And a few years back, I decided, well, I wonder if I could write a novel on climate change. And I've done a couple of those now as well. I'll read the first page here of the first chapter. That's titled Warning Symptoms. So Dr. Ivan Mazarenko stared at the data for atmospheric methane concentration and could scarcely believe his eyes. Surely it can't be, he thought. There must be something wrong with our calibration. He zeroed in on his methane results. 4,020 parts per billion, well over double what one should expect. He knew that global values had been rising more rapidly than usual for the past 10 years, but nowhere had anyone reported values higher than 1,900 parts per billion. Must be just local to our drilling here. Has to be, he thought. Recently, the state-owned petroleum company had been confirming lucrative fields of gas and oil at ice station Nikita on the Barents Sea and were under contract to the China-Ubekistan U.S. oil network, Qiuan, to prepare for major production by spring. Ivan called up his field office in Belusha Guba on Novaya Zemla Island, where his graduate student from Moscow University carried out chemical analyses. Hello, Demian. Good morning, Professor Mazarenko. 
What would you like? How have your methane readings been going? What are you reading just now? As a matter of fact, I was going to ask you the same question because our methane concentrations have been rising steadily for two days. We are now at 2,300 parts per billion, and I'm wondering whether there's a problem with my instrumentation. Exactly what I first thought, but I fear that it's real. I'm getting readings above 4,000 parts per billion on Nikita, and they continue to rise slowly. I was speaking with Diana this morning in Murmansk. She said she had readings just over 2,100 parts per billion, so I asked her to recheck all her data. She back. She got back an hour later and said it was then over 2150 parts per billion. I want you to monitor this hourly and call back Diana to do likewise. If our data prove correct and these concentrations continue to rise, then the whole world could be in very serious trouble. Hi, I'm Alex Nierenhausen. I'm the manager of uh, Librerie St. Henry Books. Uh, we've been working here for three years now, and yeah, we're all about community and understanding and and finding uh, finding yourself through literature. Hi, uh, I'm Struti uh, Islam. I am the founder of Weird Era, a literary space that partnered with St. Henry Books in 2019. I curate a Weird Era shelf of what I think are must-reads, old and new selections, and Library St. Henry Books stocks them. And in partnership with them, we also started a podcast, a literary podcast, where we interview the authors that we stock. Stories define us as humans, as civilizations. Stories are important. Oral stories are important, oral traditions are important, the written word is important, and and all of those things lend themselves to imagination and lend themselves to imagining what a better future can look like. If you don't kind of have examples, and again, you know, like even in fiction, you can read the craziest, most out of this world sci-fi, but there might be one part in there that says something to you about a possible future and that's important and that can actually change the course of your life you know what I mean I love science fiction I read so much science fiction because of that specifically because different people are imagining different worlds and what outcomes look like I highly recommend reading uh, Love After the End it's an anthology edited by Joshua Whitehead all two-spirit and indigiqueer speculative fiction stories so they're all about the future the end of the world has already happened in most of them, but in some of them, you know, indigenous leadership is brought to the forefront and and society is learning and the world is healing. And uh, it was one of the most inspiring things I think I've read recently. I just think historically we need literature and I mean, think about it. What is religion? What is, and I, I, this is not me, I don't have a political agenda. I'm, uh, and pr I'm not trying to promote that necessarily, but what is guided civilization? You know, it was literally books and stories of other people doing things. And we use that as a guideline to how we live our lives. And I, as much as so much of that conversation has changed, it hasn't really. It's, to, you know, I had an English teacher who had us study the Bible and the Quran, like from a very theoretical perspective. And she was like, these are just the, this is the greatest books ever written. You don't have to be religious, but 
some crazy shit goes down here. Sorry, I don't know if we can swear. And I a thousand percent feel that way about fiction today. I'm a big believer in critical thought. I'm a big believer in moral ambiguity. Uh, I think the two are tied together and I don't think concrete change can happen if we sit in a space where everything is black and white. We need to sit in a space where things are complicated because things are complicated. People are not good or bad. Systems are, <laughs> but maybe, but then again, systems are composed of people. So that's part of that. Mostly, I just think that there's real growth uh, and real richness and real beauty in sitting in the actual complications of our lives. I I think that after 2020, activism almost became part of the norm and part of the mainstream and definitely part of the cultural narrative that us as millennials and Gen Zs are kind of just naturally exposed to now. And, you know, we have a very uh, easy decision on whether or not we want to participate in that. And I think, I don't know, literature has really just like opened that up again through characters, through fiction, through nonfiction to be able to push yourself out of comfort zones and actually take action. We, we say that all the time, you know, like you can read books about climate change, you can read books about anti-racism, but until you're putting your knowledge into bold, concrete action, it's not fruitless, but more can be done. I think a lot of people's problems with climate change today and with maybe a misunderstanding of what they can do and what can be done is because we are so, because of capitalism, stuck in the present. And it is so much more about, well, what do I need right now? And my family needs food and we need this and we need this and we need this. And there's no thought or no consideration about the future. And, and, and thinking generations down the line, I think is something that people need to actually practice more. And that will give society a better kind of headspace to start imagining what we should be doing and start executing what needs to be executed. I will die on this hill. Fiction is such a gift that we have as a culture, and it is the place where we can explore our imaginations, as, as you've been uh, suggesting. And I really would, again, pass the mic back to Alex, because I think the genre of science fiction is particularly rich in that. Because it's full of world building and reimagining what our everyday life could and might one day look like or have looked like. So I think that is such a lucky thing for us to be able to have. But more specifically, I would say start just thinking critically. Like when you are engaging, be it with literature, be it with an artwork, be it with another person, don't limit yourself to taking everything for face value. Read between the lines. Ask for more. Don't stick to A, B, C, D. The way that you're going to enrich your life is by asking for more of that and being open to more, which is such, again, a gift that fiction gives us. I mean, I think it's like most of our social problems. It's climate change, like the rest, is absolutely tied to capitalism. So I'm not a scientist. I don't know what the solutions are in terms of, you know, fixing our world in terms in, in that department. But I absolutely know that if we can collapse these really corrupt systems that are literally a disease to our planet, to our socialhood, that I think that is absolutely possible. We talk about that definitely in terms of the literature that we explore. What what are the new worlds? What is a world without cops look like? What is a world where five people aren't billionaires? What is a world where there's equal wealth distribution? What is a world where farming is part of the day-to-day -day, uh, and we're not outsourcing everything to you know third world countries and things like that? I think that that is absolutely possible and that is a future that I'm hopeful for. I have been certainly moved by 
the younger generation. So I, I still am like, am I not the younger generation? But I guess I'm not anymore. They are younger than me. And they're certainly doing things that I wasn't doing at their age. And that's really teaching me, I think, about the future in a way that I wasn't really thinking about and, 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 and I'm now thinking about. But similarly with Alex, there's a really wonderful thing happening in fiction right now. A whole new genre of books are existing precisely because climate change wasn't really a conversation before so there's literally a genre building up of the climate change novel and one particular that struck me and is a weird era pick is Oval by Elvia Wilk and it's very much set in the future where there's these government housing exists but they're like ecologically based like the the apartments that the characters live in are literally alive and organisms and what does that mean and is that our future and I think that's a really exciting thing that hasn't existed before and and now does or is starting to. The whole point is to gain perspective and that's also why we feature POC authors, queer authors, Asian authors, indigenous authors. We feature marginalized voices so heavily here because those are stories that are important for everybody to kind of understand and to gain new perspective on. And that's how we figure out the climate crisis is by working together. And to work together, you kind of do have to know about people. And reading lets you know about people. Yeah, I guess utopia for me, if we're in this space a hundred years in the future, I hope there's a return to nature. I hope there's a return to community and community building and uh, community support. And I hope that in a hundred years from now, the police no longer exist and we have something else in place that addresses mental health at the forefront. And yeah, fairness for all. And I, uh, that's that's... I guess, utopia that I want to see. Maybe we are in the future. We keep talking the, about the future like it's this thing down the line, but maybe we're in it. And you know what? We we are in it. Like, I don't know when my parents were my age, they didn't, they were just in their present and I was in their future. But here I am now walking around, a living, talking organism person. And here I am, the future is here and that chain goes on and on forever so it's a definitely an interesting thought like what does the future mean when it's always happening the future is always present i go by millitime i am a producer rapper bassist based out of here in ndg I think about the future all the time because, I mean, who doesn't? And obviously during quarantine, I thought about it a lot because I was stuck in home just looking at what was going on via the internet because that's all I could do. So now that we can go out and, and see people again, just check up with people in the community and try to be involved, be with the group of people or the community that I'm a part of and try to give back in some way. I guess really, in school when uh, an inconvenient truth came out that was one of the first mainstream environmentally conscious movies that was kind of a thing and i used to work at a video store when they still existed and i watched the movie and i was like damn al gore hitting me with all these facts i guess growing up my mom you know she she wasn't like environmentally conscious as like some professor, but she would always make us like recycle and be conscious of the waste that we had and try to like, you know, put um, organic matter in the organic bin and, and that type of stuff. But just little steps like that, just being more conscious to what you throw out and what you, you know, she would always often try to 
buy a secondhand stuff. So that was kind of instilled in me that you don't always need to buy the flash shiny new thing all the time. I believe I'm a big advocate of being proactive with the change and, and believing that we can do it. But it's hard because people have to give up their conveniences. And a lot of people just don't want to do that on a basic level. And I think we're just in the era of the individual. And I think that that type of mentality is just hurting us more than it's doing us any good because we lose connection with things like community, lose connection with things like different generations and having that connection. And we lose so much. We're very individualistic and we're very kind of like in the present now, me, me, me. And it's not doing us any good because we're losing connections with all those things I mentioned, not to mention farming and, and knowing where our food comes from and that connection to nature. I am a city dweller, so it's different. Like for instance, my sister, she lives on a trap line, like in the middle of way Northern Ontario for like a few months a year and has a completely different lifestyle of like hunting and fishing and living off the land which I find really amazing. And then I'm like a city dweller. So I don't know, I I'm happy with it, but you know, I'm always down to be more involved uh, in the natural world. It's funny, I feel like some things should be like in the future will regress and then some things will progress. And I feel that for instance, there's like a movement now with people wanting to go back to farm life and wanting to know where their food comes from and all those things. And I feel like more and more like the vegan movement, I don't eat beef anymore. Like I'm, I'm gave like eating that up and cut back on my meat intake. So more and more people are realizing that this stuff is important, like where our food comes from. So people might say that that's regressing, but it's more like getting back with the roots of like where it came from. Yeah, I'd say that's like a big thing. And then progressing, obviously technology, social media, like all those things, those tools we have in our hand, those are gonna keep on influencing society and changing it. So it's kind of like a mixture of things, you know? Um, there's some things that people wanna get in touch with back at the source. And then we still have like society pushing forward with like technology. So it's kind of trying to find that balance. I read this article in, in CJEP that talked about any type of like technology that comes out, you gain something, but you lose something at the same time. And I think that's like the law of, you know, energy, you know, with something new, something has to be uh, lost. And I feel that with, especially with social media, people are losing that connection and living in cities, losing that connection. So there's kind of like this, a lot of people in our age group, they, they want to go to nature, go to the forest, see, feel that. Um, so yeah, it's like a mixture of both those worlds, I feel. Some of the greatest like hip hop albums that still stand the test of time are ones that have that aspect of opening up a world that people can step into and the words become, they, they, they get brought to life. And I think that's like a really an important part of, of music that is sometimes lost. It has a way of like connecting with people like, and that's what I love about that particular style and why I did it with this album. And I tried to focus on that uh, because it's just, it speaks to people in a way because 
I just keep hearing different songs with the story that I was trying to tell. Like sometimes it made them feel uncomfortable, but it made them think. And I, and I that's something that I want to keep doing because music is a vehicle for change and it has the power to touch your soul and make you think about things. And that's pretty cool and that's pretty profound. So knowing that music has that power, um, I just try to be a vehicle for that. <laughs> yeah, when I started the graduate studies, I went in the north and I was looking at the geomorphology, you know, the landscape, what shaped the mountains, and this was my interest. And I started to look at the soils and go back in times, and I learned something phenomenal, the palynology, to look at the microfossils that uh, uh, that represent past life oh wow so uh, and uh, to visualize what was the vegetation thousand years ago or uh, hundred thousand years ago it is something that uh, really uh, excited me and uh, still <laughs> but the, the trouble in the evolution in the uh, uh, when you uh, look at the past climate and past environment the uh, crisis happen when uh, change were very, very rapid due to a meteorite, due to something that uh, 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 forcing that is uh, modifying the slow rhythm of uh, things. And at the moment we are doing that, the impact men has on the environment with the deforestation, with the carbon dioxide emission is like uh, 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 an atomic bomb or close to we are living in real time a climate change of the scale of something that would have occurred in centuries, millennia. Even there is an acceleration, we, we are starting to see an acceleration of the sea level uh, rise due to thermal expansion, but also of, uh, due to the melt of glacier. And this is frightening, really. We may limit the acceleration, we may try to stabilize, but we cannot revert. The Greenland ice sheet is condemned. Its decrease has started. The Greenland ice sheet represents the equivalent of seven meters of sea level rise globally, which means much more at some place, less at some others. And this is not a gentle rise. It comes with the storm, with many things, with tsunamis, and, and it has started. But more frightening than that, seven meters, it is relatively high. But uh, uh, if you think that uh, there is a destabilization of the Antarctica ice sheet that has started, and this is close to 70 meters, climate is, in winter it is cold. You don't feel the need to change the climate in winter here in Montreal. And the climate is something that is changing uh, gradually. It is not from one event and the next year it will be over. No, 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 it is there for a long time. And politicians are uh, um, there for a couple of years. So in their agenda, they want to please to people and uh, uh, people um, uh, 
are thinking in economical terms rather than in ecological terms, I suppose, most of the time. I'm a paleoclimatologist, so if I talk about economy, this is totally out of my competence. But uh, my feeling is that we are in a world dominated by economy and uh, there are more people to listen to economists than to climatologists, honestly. And people are looking at their income more than at the climate. When I was a, a child, the furniture was there since decades, since century, and therefore a long time. Now people are just changing their furniture to each time they move and to, uh, several times in their life. So there are more people on earth. When I was a child, the world population, I remember when we crossed the number of three billions. We are close to eight now. If you look at the map of the density of the population, this is dramatic. In Canada, this is not a problem, but there are many countries where this is a problem. And can you imagine if everyone is consuming as much as we do in countries that are not much populated. If you look, you put uh, plot uh, the curves of uh, population and temperature, global temperature, at the scale of the uh, one century. You see the two curves are almost parallel. Even my mother, my sister, they, they didn't uh, consider climate as uh, something important before, but now they they ask me questions. So there is a, a, a consciousness of the population that is uh, growing and some young who are considering changing. Many would like to be active, to contribute to the change. Many young people are now vegetarian for that reason. I met even one young fellow who really loved eating meat, but he didn't. So there are people changing their way of thinking and the way uh, the young are thinking has changed, not everywhere, not in all spheres of the society. But um, I can tell you something. I am um, a part of a Germany Canada program, training program at the doctoral level. And we were used to meet uh, at least once a year in Canada, in Germany, in the north, in uh, Vienna. And uh, uh, we didn't meet for two years now. And uh, we, uh, when in my colleague in Germany was discussing the forthcoming meeting, the student mentioned, oh, well, we, even if we are allowed to travel, maybe we should not because of carbon dioxide emission. And uh, so the, the young people, are starting to think um, in terms that are very different to what I was used to. I'm still very selfish and I like to travel, so I didn't consider stopping. My name is Nicolas Chevalier, my pronouns are they, them. I am both a climate justice activist in the larger sense of the term, and I am currently completing 
a bachelor's in environmental science at Concordia. I've been part of activist circles for five or six years now. I initially got interested in environmental science because for most of my life until I was 30 something, I didn't know what my passions were, but then I heard people from the conservative government of that time trying to say that oil was actually a renewable energy, that you know it was part of nature and all that. And I felt actual anger, but a different kind than I'd felt before. And I knew that this was something I had to look into. And that's why I started at Concordia. That wasn't enough. That's why I started to look at activist circles. And that's where I found, I guess what you could say, I was meant to do with my life. And myself have taken a different path than the usual career orientation of getting a university degree. Most of my time is spent in work that doesn't give me any sort of monetary reward or anything, but that's fine by me. What I do is I try to organize with other like-minded folks, whatever their background is, into understanding what our actions mean, who we're trying to do these actions for, and how we can have wider knowledge amongst a larger group of people. I'm a mature student, so most of my life has been spent getting remedial jobs. I worked as an electronic repair person, which was horrible because I got a high school professional degree and that's only meant to like know the basics. Then I worked in construction with my family and there would be good days and bad days with that, but it, I knew that it wasn't what I was meant to do. Uh, but at the same time, people would be pushing me to say that this is what you're doing with your life and this is what you're always going to be doing. You do not have a choice. I was on a path. I could choose to do this for the rest of my life and be miserable, except for small pockets where either I would spend money and make myself happy, either try to have relationships outside of that that would make me happy, or change my life completely at a later age, which was very scary. There were all these relationships that were being built throughout this. And like the word solidarity is something I'd heard before, but the meaning of it is something that's a little bit harder to grasp because the way we're sold into the world is anything that is in support has to be transactional. We're giving money to something. We're helping somebody by paying them for something. And my understanding now is that it goes much deeper than that. Solidarity is not doing something because what's in it for me? What reward will I get? That being said, part of my personal evolution is through this work, but I don't see it as the main goal. The main goal in solidarity and what I see it as is helping people in their efforts to liberate themselves from systems of oppression while being able to engage myself in ways that I possibly hadn't engaged before and have a wider understanding of what it is to be in relation with other people, in relation with our environment in a in a way that's not really taught in basic classes. You know, I have the privilege of being able to work in these circles. And, you know, sometimes it's hard, but it's also, I think, my duty to sort of try and change a narrative in places where uh, that sort of more holistic and inclusive narrative doesn't exist. We've become so specialized in all different areas that there's no uh, way to be transversal about this knowledge. 
And as I say all this, uh, I owe all of this knowledge to supporting Indigenous uh, nations, Indigenous folks, uh, and, you know, not just showing up at rallies, but literally uh, helping them survive their daily uh, struggle with the so-called country of Canada. You know, white supremacy is a big term for a lot of people, but I think it encompasses uh, the very moment we're in right now. Because the way we change nature, the way we put a lot of people aside because white people believe that their opinions and their views were supreme to others, still exists very much this day, not only in the Catholic Church, in secular circles also. And I think Quebec is a very specific case of this. I'm a Quebecer myself. I, I was raised by two French-speaking parents, but I never identified with this uh, so-called nationalist project, maybe because, you know, it was cruxed on a language and a language should not have to survive on further separation from other uh, groups. It should be built in solidarity so that people want you to help you continue the language at the same time as other languages, other cultures interact with it. I always find it funny, especially now that the sovereignty movement is much more to the right, if you will. It probably was in many ways before that I hadn't seen, but that, you know, they see not the way that for-profit companies, for-profit governments, and that sort of system is what is destroying whatever values they want to preserve. But they're saying that it's immigration, it's all the, these concepts of systemic racism that are coming from the United States that are destroying them, which is absolutely absurd. Because, you know, French people came here, they lost or were colonized, in quotation marks, by the English, but they were still colonizers. They still kept indigenous people from their land. Whatever will people or revisionist historists, as I like to call them, say that French people would have had or Quebec people would have had, don't exist. So there has to be an acknowledgement that whatever relationship we tried to build in the past, we are here. We have to recognize this imbalance. It's not in fighting for a nation for a white French-speaking people that we're going to save the world. It's in reestablishing relationships with indigenous people, reestablishing their relationship to the land. And whatever that means for us will have to be understood through those relationships. I mean, first and foremost, in a hundred years, hopefully from all the way at the federal level, there would be, and here I'm quoting Arthur, the late Arthur Manuel, who wrote the Reconciliation Manifesto, not the original title, they named it after his passing, so not great. But basically that federal government, the church and all that would repudiate the doctrine of discovery, which was the original document that let them claim these lands, that the land back movement is very anchored. It's like, that sounds simple, but it's not that simple. So it's a deconstructing of relationships and then a rebuilding of, well, for indigenous people, the relationship to their lands and then for us, an understanding that anything that does with the land, like this park, like the houses and all that, has to go through them. There are many different views from them on this, and that's completely fair. Some would have us, you know, get the hell out of this land and leave it to them to reestablish. But in a more realistic sense, and 
this is not pessimist, but somewhere in there, like we at the same time would have a growing uh, climate refugee crisis because even if we stopped, uh, kept all the fossil fuels in the ground, which I hope in a hundred years, exploitation of that will be stopped. There'll probably still be stockpiles for use here and there, but that's part of a transition. So definitely warmer, less birds probably, but hopefully through collaboration and decolonization of university and science with indigenous land knowledge and local knowledge, there'll be ways to make, if it's a park or not, I don't know, but it's, it'll be a common space, which is first and foremost indigenous land. And hopefully it'll be thriving with spaces for people to grow food. Let's see, decolonized commons is not a thing yet, but whatever that would look like at that point would hopefully be something like that. And the wish is that, you know, for profit is not a thing that is held as uh, like, you know, the ultimate chapel, cooperative solidarity economies, that um, these concepts are able to be articulated by those who are usually left at the margins, which means, you know, communities that are not white that currently inhabit Montreal would be the ones who would sort of lead these things, but at the same time, cooperatives are non-hierarchical. So, but that's an understanding that there has to be a rebalancing of relationships, which means, no, we're not going to stop at everybody being equal. There's going to have to be retribution, redistribution, and all these things. And that within a hundred years, we'll definitely still be in the process. Uh, but we'll definitely hopefully be at a place where, you know, mutual aid, caring for one another is not questioned by any one person. And if a, a person questions that, they, they're made to look silly, not, you know, retributive justice or any kind of stuff like that, but in a way where it's understandable that we're still being deprogrammed from capitalistic mindset, but we're working towards a way of better living together and with the planet. My name is Trevor Chirlene. I'm the founder of Plateau Astro, and I uh, try to teach about space and astronomy in Montreal in a light polluted environment because there's still a lot of things to see that most people don't don't know about. So the planets, the moon, space station, constellations. And so I started this in 2018 and uh, I do workshops and events, uh, teach people about uh, about the sky. Astronomy is uh, the study of the sky. So the sun, the planets, the stars. From a scientific perspective, people often get astrology and astronomy mixed up. Astrology was, up until pretty recently, a couple centuries ago, was, they were kind of two and the same, but then they sort of branched off as a scientific method sort of took place in, I want to say, around the 16th or 17th century. And so from a scientific point of view, this is the study of the, um, of the stars and the, the sky and, and, uh, and the planets. I've been interested in space since I was a kid, so it's been sort of hovering in the background of my life all this time, mostly through space exploration from the human space exploration programs. But in 2013, after I moved to Montreal, I uh, was coming in for landing on a plane and I was sitting on the left-hand side of the plane. As we were coming in for landing, I see this red thing on the horizon and it's getting 
higher and higher on the horizon. And I didn't realize what it was at first, but it was the full moon rising on the horizon. It looked big, it looked it looked red. And I remember like turning around in my seat going like, hey, to the passenger behind me, hey, look what's look what's look what's there, the full moon. It's it, it's it's rising there. And I sort of thought to myself, like, what this is like a one in a million shot, one in a million chance I'm ever gonna see this. As the plane is landing, I'm on the correct side of the plane and seeing it it rising. And I thought about it for a moment, like, wait a minute, can't I there's gotta be people who like know when these things will happen. And so the next month I went up to Mont Royal to the to the mountain here in Montreal. And I found out what time the, the next full moon was supposed to appear on the eastern horizon. And at the exact moment it said it was going to rise on the website, it, it rose. And so that really sort of sparked something uh, inside of me. So I started doing these events, bringing people up to the mountain and showing them. And they'd never thought to, to, to look at that either. And so the ball has just kept on rolling and rolling and rolling since then. So it's, it's really born out of a less scientific point of view of like me wanting to like, I don't know, find microbes on other planets or something like that, but probably more from like, like a visceral beauty point of view of like, it looks really beautiful when the moon is low on the horizon and wanting to share that and show that with other people. And so, um, yeah, it's just been snowballing since then and branching out into different, uh, different things, adding a telescope into the mix and uh, sort of uh, showing people uh, that uh, we're, we're inside of, in space and uh, there's clues all around us in our daily life and trying to show that to people. I, I believe in climate change. The data is, is, is showing it. I trust the people that are doing the research and uh, uh, they have the facts to, to, uh, to back it up. It still feels like it lies in the conceptual part of my brain. The thing where it's like, it doesn't quite feel real to me yet. And maybe that's a folly on, 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 on my part, but it conceptually perpetually feels like it's 20 years out, 30 years, years out. And um, maybe we're finally starting to see those, those effects uh, uh, come to life. I have been thinking about it more recently in regards to, to, uh, to COVID and thinking of like, when are we finally going to act on climate change? And I think, the resistance to, to act right now on climate change is because it's something that feels decades out. We're going to feel the effects of it, you know, 2040, 2050, 2060. And it's, oh, we, you know, we got time to, 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 to goof around for a little bit more. And then we'll, we'll really get working on it in 2030 or so. But then with COVID, it's like, we see the numbers in front of us. Like we, 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 we see that vaccinations are working and yet people still don't, want to act on it, who don't want to get vaccinated. And it's like, if we're not going to act on this thing that is immediate in two weeks time, you can be like completely okay for the most part and uh, prevent getting sick from it. And yet people still won't do it. Man, what, what, what are the chances we're going to work on something that's going to be decades uh, uh, out from us? So it's been, I've been thinking about it more the last few weeks. It's sort of been depressing to, to think about it. Yeah. The last few weeks here in Montreal, uh, we've been seeing seeing more uh, more smog here and uh one of the sort of interesting effects of that is the sun looks uh very orange or sort of a, a deeper yellow color even like a red color as it gets lower on the horizon and this feels like a very new thing for people who live in montreal montreal often doesn't get smog like this 
and these are coming from 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 forest fires from from uh, Ontario. So this is why we're, we're we're seeing it that way. And about two three weeks ago, uh, we'd be able to see that the, the moon was up in the sky and it also looked orange and this uh, yellowish orange orange color. Um, I grew up in Alberta. And so we would get forest fires quite common from, from British Columbia. And so it was quite common to see the sun sort of get uh, 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 filtered out uh, in the sky. But here in Quebec, it feels like a very novel thing for people. I, I would post photos of this, of the you know, yellowish orange sun and, and, and the orange moon. And people would say like, where's this coming from? Where's this coming from? And people would often say like, are there forest fires like just outside of the island of Montreal? And I tell them like, no, no, it's coming from, from Ontario. It's coming from, I don't know, hundreds of kilometers away. It's not coming directly here. It's over there and we're feeling the effects over, over here. A concept I was very familiar with as a kid growing up in Alberta, but I think here people haven't quite felt that. Even without smog in the air, we can see the sun and uh, the moon as a orange, orange red color. I do an event called Moonrise and we go up to the mountain and when the moon first rises on the horizon, when it's low on the horizon, it appears red or an orange color. This is all the time uh, 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 this happens. The reason for that is because the light coming to reach your, your eye has to go through more air, has to go through more atmosphere to reach your eye. And when light has to go through more air, the wavelengths, the, the light gets scattered, okay? So the Roy G. Biv, the, the red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet of the, the color spectrum, the blues and the greens, they get scattered more and they don't, reach your reach your eye. As the moon gets higher in the sky, the light goes through less atmosphere. And so those all, all those colors of the uh, of the spectrum can reach your eye. So it starts as a red color, goes to an orange, a yellow, and then to a normal white moon color. So the effect of that is just a, the light has to go through more air. It has to go through more of a medium. With the smoke, it's the same same principle. This though, there's more things in the air. There's smoke particles, there's dust, and the light is trying to reach your eye, but it keeps getting scattered by these particles in the air. And so we have all these smoke particles and the, the, the red and the orange is able to reach your, your eye, but the yellows and the, the greens and the blues of the color spectrum, they don't reach your eye. So you're just sort of left with those, those red and orange colors. As far as light pollution goes, yeah, light pollution is, uh, is uh, generally pretty contained. Like light pollution doesn't travel all the way to, to, to Ontario. It's basically sort of stays uh, in place. But yeah, you do sort of get this, you do get this tragedy of the commons thing of, of we, 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 we want light, we wanna be able to see things, but we lose something collectively up there, up there in the sky with, with light pollution. I teach about space and astronomy in probably one of the worst possible areas to do in a very, very light polluted urban urban environment. And you can make do, and you can still see some, some incredible things. And that might be analogous to like what the world we're gonna live in in the future. Will it still be habitable? Probably, but it will be very, very difficult. At least with light pollution, we're able to go outside of the city and, and evade that. With climate change, it's not location-based for the most part. I guess you could go very far north eventually and, and, and get out of it, but it's, it's more of a, a, a temporal shift. You'd have to go back in time to sort of get, get to these, say, unpolluted skies of, 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 of what the past of what the past was like. I mean, there's, there's been initiatives for, for 
quite a few decades now of trying to reduce light pollution in different areas. And it, it's, it's things as simple as things that we need to replace every decade or so anyways, like uh, replacing lights around the city. And it's small changes like that, just like the light design, rather than have the lights go upwards and in all directions, you, you, you have a shade on the top and it only goes sort of downwards, uh, reducing the number of lights that you need anyways. Do we really need to have all these downtown buildings be lit up? I mean, maybe there's some sort of like name and shame thing here where we have, you know, a, a corporate logo on, on the top of it. Uh, and then they have all these lights there. Maybe they want to, they want to express something there like air transit. We keep the lights on. It's like, well, okay. Well, maybe we build up some sort of initiative. Like we don't really need all those lights. You can have your logo and maybe a blinking dot. So airplanes don't crash into you. Changes, uh, changes like that. Again, I don't want to be a fool and say, Hey, just buy a reusable cloth bag and you've saved the planet. You know, you can't just change a light bulb and, and, and fix, fix light pollution. I think it has to be a more systemic way to, 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 to change this. To sound like an, an optimist almost sounds like you're an idiot. Like, are you reading the news? And I think this does go through even the time of year that you kind of ask the question, people will respond differently. So we're doing this in the middle of summer right now when we, I think yesterday, even too, there was some smog in the air and, and, and uh, the sun was, uh, was kind of orange. So to have wide-eyed optimism and say everything's gonna be okay. People are uh, gonna look at you kind of suspiciously. I was thinking about it this morning, and I saw. I think it was an ad on 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 Twitter where it said I forget what company it was and what their initiative was, but it it always seems these companies say 2030. Okay, and that's nine years away, eight and a half years away, and that feels just long enough for one executive to sort of put the initiative forth and then not have to worry about it in four, five, six years because they'll be out of the company or, or retire or something like that. This, 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 this rescindance of, of responsibility. I think there should be some sort of public backlash against those sort of far off dates like that. How about we have something where it's like 2025? 2025 and 2030, those are pretty big, big differences. 2025, that's three and a half years away. That turns the actionable thing from not years, but into like, six month chunks. What are you gonna do in six month chunks? I think seeing that type of initiative would give me a bit more hope. It, 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 I guess it's good to see these companies making these things, but they gotta like make it more, more tangible, more, more pressing, okay? If you'd asked me two years ago, um, before all the COVID stuff hit, when um, may maybe I'd be able to say we'd be successfully be able to get ourselves out of this. That might be the case. We screwed a lot of things up with, with, with COVID, obviously. What we did though was do a, we did do a lot of sacrifice. We did shut almost everything, everything down. We made this, this, this sacrifice for, for good reasons. I've kept on playing with the, the numbers from the Spanish flu and I think about 50 million people died in a population of about, I want to say with the world population was around 1.82 billion people or so. And I've sort of been conflating that with our population at what about 8 billion, billion people now. And now we have international air travel and stuff like that. So but I'll keep the 50 million as the, the number of people that could have died during during COVID. Right now it's at about 4.5 million people, still a, a, a disaster. But I compare that against the 50 million. So the way I try to see is right now, so far we've saved about 45 million lives. And the way we did this was 
shutting down everything, getting most people to wear masks, getting three out of four people fully vaccinated. We are able to do these grand projects and do it while like improvising. Like we didn't really have a solid plan for all this, this, this stuff. And that's maybe what it'll look like when the shit really hits the fan in, in the next decade or so. We are able to do these grand projects and sacrifice, sacrifice things. So there's hope there, but again, wide-eyed optimism in the face of uh, uh, a tidal wave coming to crash in on you is uh, a bit naive. We live a, above a capitalist country and we live in a mixed economy, but basically a capitalist economy here. So it, it, does, it does run our lives more here. I think maybe it's just a, a, the, the volume of initiative marketing <laughs> that you hear people, that you hear companies talk about more so than, 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 um, than governments. Uh, not saying governments don't do it, but you just hear, it, it, especially with the Olympics. <laughs> uh, you keep hearing these ads, there's, there's a few, like they just sort of repeat, repeat, repeat. And like, there's like a Toyota one where it's like, well, there's a lot of the same commercials that come on over and over. So it's sort of like drilled into you. And so there's like a, a Toyota commercial that just keeps on playing about what the future could look like and different ones talking about their, uh, their initiatives. So I think it's just repetition of hearing all these companies say that they're gonna do this and this more than I hear governments doing it, so. Not, I'm not abdicating responsibility for one or the other, but it just seems like we're influenced probably more by uh, what companies will, will do. Yeah, I, I'd say there's a public perception of that, that uh, we're gonna go to Mars and terraform Mars. And in reality, that is not, within our lifetimes, probably not even two or three centuries uh, from now. Those are sort of like grand, grand visions of the future, but they're, they're, they're not escape pods. They're not building escape pods to, uh, uh, to, to, to leave here. Especially, so we're, we're, we're recording this about like, I want to say two weeks after Jeff Bezos did his, his, his ride into space. And they're not doing it just for, for, for joy. Sometimes I see a tweet where it's like, Bezos spent five billion bucks so he could go into space. It's a bit more involved than that. What they want to be is a, is a launch provider for different governments, put up satellites and stuff like that and, and make, a, make a company out of that. And one way they do that is through, some spa through space tourism. And so this is the, the flight it is. They would sell tickets to this and, 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 and make, make money out of it. I don't think the billionaires are, are promising an escape hatch out of, out of Earth. And I don't want to make this to sound like I'm, I'm defending Jeff, Jeff Bezos and his ridiculous cowboy hat. Again, fool's errand. But I, I don't think many people know kind of like what, the, what, 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 they're, trying, what they're trying to build. Okay. We need to have the ability to send up satellites to do, to do things that will help us here on, on, on Earth. So like satellites that will observe different changes in, in climate. They would provide launch capabilities to put those, orbit, uh, put those satellites into orbit. I do think though that Bezos and uh, Branson, they are extremely unself-aware of just how silly they kind of look. They've amassed all this wealth and they, they, in some ways, I look at them like, you're kind of doing like some good. I guess it's because it's a, it's a thing I, I'm, I'm into and I, I, I see the goodness of it and maybe I'm, I'm filtering it, the, the, the bad parts of it. But yeah, the self-awareness of, of some of it is uh, not a good look, especially in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of increasing wealth, uh, wealth gap. They, they seem very not down to earth, not, not, not here. Yeah. We have, there's thousands and thousands of satellites around earth and 
Some are meant for, for Earth observation, so to notice the, the change in our climate. And those are, are, are critical for us to understand the problems that we're, we're, we're facing here. And some of these satellites have been up there for, uh, for decades. And so we can build up an archive of how it has changed in the last 30, 40 years. And that can guide us and, and, and give us the data points that we need to see what we can what we can do do in the future. So space exploration, I think right now in summer 2021, the headlines that are being made are ridiculous billionaires with silly cowboy hats going into space. But there are things that will help us in the future being sent up by some of these uh, these these companies uh, to help us analyze what is going going on here on Earth. Some of the things we need to do to, to, to mitigate this is encouraging younger people to, to get interested in the sciences and to come up with, with, with solutions for it. What my fear is uh, people who um, want to build awareness about a thing. We've built up enough, enough awareness. <laughs> We're good. <laughs> I, I think, I think, I think uh, people are aware of climate change, but I, I, I see a lot of people Spreading awareness about this particular issue, some issues you need to do awareness building. I think we sort of saturated the, uh, the, the, the awareness for climate change. I think we're good. What I would encourage people, particularly young people who are teenagers, what they want to do with, with, with college, uh, what they want to do for college, is take climate change, get interested in what it is, learn the science behind it, and then you get to be part of the probably the most important project that the human species has ever, ever faced. And isn't that cool? You know, sure, you could, you could go work at, uh, at, at Facebook or Uber, or you could work at, at, at Google and uh, make sure uh, advertisements are, are, are served to people more and more quickly. Or, or you can be part of the biggest project uh, humankind has ever, um, ever faced. I would like to see more solution building out of this problem from sort of like a, a technical point of view. How can we make a more efficient means of getting things around, distributing you know, goods that, 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 that we need? Don't know too, too much about carbon sequestration. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing the word correctly. Or carbon capture is probably the, 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 the like sucking carbon out of the air. That I don't really know, but like I, I, would, I would rather somebody be researching and looking into those sort of things than just posting more things on social media about how things need to need to change like let's let's get some action done with this you know i'm 15 years out of out of out of graduating from 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 high school and i would have thought maybe by this time we would start to see some progress about okay carbon emissions going down and the rate just seems to keep going up and up and up and up i've seen more awareness about the issue but in terms of real world uh, problem solving for it i'm uh, 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 concerned we're not getting people interested into the sciences to make meaningful uh, uh, changes um, to solve it. How recent all of this all of this is. So the Earth has been around for about four and a half, we'll say five billion years to make it easy. Life forms started coming on here, I want to say about two billion years ago. So for over half the time the Earth has been around, nothing was here. Nothing was really going on, you know. Comets were smashing into it, lava was being spewed or whatever. Things didn't come onto land 
until about 150 million years ago. It, like took the entire span of, of Earth, divide that by two, that's that's like life here. And then you go right there and it's like a, an even smaller sliver of, of, of what's going on. Humans in our current form here have been around for about 200,000 years. We're getting to a slice of a slice of a slice of a slice of a slice of, 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 of um, the lifespan of, of Earth here. 200,000 years, recorded history is about 6,000 years. And really like the industrial revolution, which is, that's the part where really changing the climate here, us putting pollutants into it, really only started probably maybe 150, 200, 200 years ago. And um, if we can change it for the worse in that short amount of time, maybe there's a way to also change it for better, not maybe back to its pristine state, but over sort of maybe not 150 years, not 200 years, not that same time, but let's say like a thousand, a thousand years, maybe we could start to, to, to sort of do it. Maybe that's the sort of the, 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 the time scale that we need to start thinking of as a species, is looking at how long this whole planet has been around, how long life has been on it, how long humans have been on it. Maybe we need to start thinking of these sort of grand projects in that way. And thinking it, of it not as trying to save the planet. The planet has been here for about, as I said, five billion years. It's been like hit by meteors. Dinosaurs have roamed here and, and everything. The planet is still gonna be here. The rock floating in space will still be here. The system that lets us live as human beings, that's what's at threat. Ch changing the idea from, from it, it, it's not about saving the planet. It's about saving the things that like allows us to breathe. We're sort of shooting ourselves in the foot if we if we don't do it. Earth could probably, you know, we could be wiped out. We'll suffocate and, and, and be in the ground and then, you know, a hundred thousand years will go by and maybe the, the, the ozone layer and, and, and uh, the atmosphere will have no, uh, very little carbon in the air and stuff like that. And then a new, the, the process will, will begin again. I guess this is starting where you get into like, philosophy and stuff of like like what 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 is the human project and like what is our, our our point here do we just die off now and then evolution happens again and and and, and it, it all starts with the new sort of life form on the same planet when you say a hundred years like automatically like a jetpack and a flying car comes to mind but we were saying that 40 years ago and basically it kind of looks essentially the same you know certain revolutions happened in that time. I think we did imagine maybe, you know, like a flying car, a, a, a jetpack sort of thing, but what ended up happening was computer miniaturization. And that totally changed the game, the way that we're talking right now due to computer miniaturization. On the outside, if you had to be transported right now to 100 years, I think it'll look kind of largely the same. You would walk around on streets. We are not going to have those airport-like things on the sidewalk that like get you to one part of the airport to the other. I don't think it's going to be, it's going to be things uh, 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 quite like that, at least in a hundred years. I'm, I'm, I'm curious what the, what like the next revolution will be. Like what's the version of the computer miniaturization revolution? What will that be in 2060? 2070, let's say, and that will totally change society. We'll still look the same as humans. We'll, 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 we'll still dress goofy. I don't know why 19 year old kids are wearing Crocs. That's a mystery to me. Maybe we'll have the 2120 version of, 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 of Crocs at that time. But I think there, there'll be some sort of revolution. I don't know what that is, is yet. And hopefully that will be part of the thing that gets us out of this mess. I, I, there's a part of me that I think, I need to, I need to 
sort of figure out what is my, and this will sound very cynical or, or bad as, as I say it, and I said it in my head, like, Trevor, you're an awful person. Like, what is the point at which I, 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 kind, of, I kind of care? Okay. If I have a kid, I'm going to care about that kid. If I have a grandchild, I'm going to care about that, that grandchild. If I'm still living and I have a great-grandchild, I'll, I'll care about that, that, that child. Do I care about my great-grandchild? My great-great, my great-great. How many generations divided is it that like I, I kind of stop, stop caring? I don't want this to be a reflection on my, my current character. It's a question that's just coming to my head. Let, there will be a day when the last human will be on Earth. The sun will blow up and, and the planet is no longer here. That's one possibility. Or we put too much pollutants in the air it scorches and it bakes and there'll be the last human and that's sort of done done for the species. If that last person is say a thousand generation human generations from now or that last person is 500 generations from now would that make a difference to me? And again as I say those words I'm like you sound like such an asshole and I'm like I'm, I'm just trying to like figure out like what is the point of like which I I stop caring about the the the, 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 the future the future generations and uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to how to how to answer that. Like, how 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 far into the future do I care about our not only our species, I guess you know other other species as well. Do I care about the blue whale uh, thirty generations from 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 now? And I, I don't. I'm not sure if I have a great answer for that. My my child, my grandchild, my great grandchild. Yes. Beyond that, I I I, I don't know. I don't I don't know. Would I want to live to be 110 and those last 30 years of my life are just like in wheelchairs with hunched over and just not feeling good? Like I, I think a lot of people would say, well, I'd rather live to like I'm 85 and have most of my life be in, in relatively good health and then in the last few years, okay, deteriorating health and then I sort of, I slip away. I think that's not an uncommon view, view on how I want my own personal life to be. If we do that same sort of thing with humanity, does it change? Is, is the answer the same or is it different? It sounds so selfish to say like, well, how about we just say we'll have 500 generations of humans and let's have fun along the way. Let's, let, let, let's, let's have our, 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 our plastic chairs and our, our slide whistles, you know. Let's make all the fun things. Let's use all the resources we can. Let's have fun for 500 generations. 1,000 generations? Ah, we're good. We're here for a good time, not a long time. I don't know, like, have we as a species had that introspection? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Don't make this a, 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 a character judgment. These are just questions that sometimes I, I wake up in the middle of the night. I'm like, oh, well. 500 generations, 1,000 generations, what's the difference to me, you know? And maybe it's that apathy is sort of like, what has led us to this, this point of view, or this, this moment. The interviews for this oral history were recorded in Geojage, Montreal, the traditional territory of the Ganyankeage Nation, who are recognized as the customary custodians of these lands and waters. Imagining the Future was produced by Justine Smith, with Gwen Rowley as the production assistant. This is the third and final part in the CGLO series, Sounds in Our Changing World, funded by the Community Radio Fund of Canada. The purpose of this piece and the Sounds in Our Changing World series is to share stories about the climate crisis in a context that is local to Montreal. Graphics and promo were designed by Angelica Gangnuli. This project wouldn't have been possible without the participation of Nicholas Chevalier, Sruti Islam, Jess Merwin, Alex Nierenhausen, Jeff Strong, Mila Time, Anne Varnal, and Trevor Tierlian. You can find links to listen to the full program along with the full-length unedited interviews and a transcript of the program at cglo.com. Listen to previous parts in the series, Zone Rouge and On Interdependence on CGLO SoundCloud and at cglo.com slash on interdependence.